welcome to Everyday Eternal. I'm uh, your host, Jake Corey. I'm Matt Pavlik. I'm Pulverfab. Otherwise known as uh, Sean O'Brien. And uh, we have a special guest today. We're joined by Julian Knab. Hi, guys. Uh, you may have heard of him. You might know me. You may have heard of him. Uh, uh, sorry, I, I always interrupt you. It's okay, it's okay. <laughs> Just keep going. Just keep going. Okay, you might know me. I'm Julian23 in the source. And yeah, Jacob invited me over to be on the podcast tonight. You may have heard uh, about Julian Knab. Uh, he won Bazaar of Moxen over in Paris uh, over last weekend, playing a uh, very fun and very powerful elf deck. So um, we thought we'd bring him onto the show and uh, give our listeners a chance to uh, hear his accounting of it and have a tournament wet for him, his preparation, maybe some funny stories. So um, let's get started. So I guess I'll talk now. Um, so Julian, how did you prepare for Bazaar of Mox in Paris? So um, I think the, the most important part of the preparation was actually uh, finding sidebar cards I really liked. Because, you know, when you talk about, about elves and legacy, you've got a core of like 55 cards. And there's not a whole lot you can actually change about it. So the most part of my preparation was dedicated to finding the right strategies, the right choices, mostly on Magic Online. So, yeah, that's about last week I played a tournament, the week before the Bazaar of Moxen. I 6 0 it, which was pretty cool. And uh, at that tournament, I actually decided to run Rurik Thar in the main deck as my 61st card, <coughs> mainly because it's just gigantically pr improves your combo matchup. You know, without Rurik Thar in the main deck, you're like, I'd say about maybe even less than 20% against Storm combo. And at least with Rurik Thar, you've got an actual card to, to natural order for, though. So without getting too much into the sp uh, specifics of, of the single choices, I was mostly concerned about the sideboard for the last weeks before the tournament. Yeah. I, now, Julian, you've been—I've uh, been seeing that you've been streaming on um, Twitch TV and Magic Online. Um, how has that experience, uh, both playing and kind of describing how your plays are formulated, and maybe getting some uh, viewer feedback? Yeah. Uh, how did that help you prepare for? The oh, tournament? it helped a lot. Really, it helped a whole lot because first I just started because I thought streaming would be fun and act it actually is fun once you get used to you know setting it up and all the technical stuff but playing in front of an audience even if it's just 10 or 20 people makes you play so much more you know with focus and by ex actually explaining while playing you not only waste a lot of time which I <laughs> got to know when I timed out sometimes but you actually have to really think your plays through and you have to explain not only to your viewers but also to yourself why you are making the play and you're not just you know sometimes you get on magic online you just join some random two minutes and you just play and see where it goes but when playing in front of an audience you have to really tighten up your play and that helped a lot really because also some of the feedback was really really good to uh, even if it, if it was just about bad plays or maybe considering different sideboard choices it's yeah if you're not testing with a team like in a team house before like a pro tour uh, streaming and getting some some you know audience feedback is, is really really valuable. That's good. That's that's really uh, encouraging to hear. Um, so you heard it here first. Stream your way to success. <laughs> yeah, kind of. 
It also felt really, really good, you know, w once I got back from was from Vassar and I, I started my stream again, everybody was like, hey, congratulations, hey, I'm so glad you made it. Or, or some guys were like, what's happening? Why is everybody so excited? And the, they were like, yeah, you know, this guy, you've been listening and watching to, uh, he won the Bazaar of Moxen and everybody was like, no way, really? And yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> it felt so what? great. This guy right here, <laughs> no <laughs> No way, I don't believe it. I must yeah. have heard it on the internet. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> Did you follow the coverage of the Basar of Moxen at live? Uh, you know, live or...? I unfortunately was uh, playing in Star City Los Angeles, uh, and I played both the standard and the legacy portions. Um, so I was uh, following along on Twitter, but uh, and there was I think there was like a 10-hour uh, delay. Uh, or ahead, so I did hear a little bit of news. Um, tried to retweet, retweet uh, whenever I heard some interesting news, but uh, I couldn't follow along for the matches being played. So I did see a couple of the matches uh, rebroadcast, and that was that was really cool. So tell us about your bizarre experience um, from a tournament perspective. I know you played in both a prelim tournament and in the main event. Yeah, uh, I arrived in Paris. I think it was on Thursday. Yeah, actually, was it? Yeah, on Thursday. And you know, I really like getting to the t to the tournament at least one or two days ahead before the big main event. I didn't really plan to play in the trial. It just yeah pl came naturally as I was there. So I signed up for the trial, which turned out to be about you know th almost 300 people, which is quite a lot for you know just a trial. And before the tournament, we did the math, the math, and I was like, uh, I said to my friend, you know, it's very likely only one or two people will actually 7-0 the tournament. And at that point, I didn't really expect to be the guy who 7-0s myself. So, yeah, 6-1 six, six would have been nice as well, because 6-1 gets your uh, uh, blackboard at UC, which is kind of nice, about 300 euros. But then I started playing. And the first round I was playing against Blue White Red Delver, which is a really bad matchup because they've got so much removal. But somehow I managed to squeeze it out, even through humidity and chitter. But yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, the next two rounds were pretty easy. I was playing against Chunk and Shardless Buck, and there's not a whole lot they can do against Progenitors. Um, uh, then the mirror match came along, and I was playing some. I think I was playing Polish guys almost. Every third or fourth round, I was playing against somebody from Poland. Really, really nice people. And I think that's one of the points where I realized I felt I've got a different approach to the to elves in general. Because my opponent, he was siding in, like, mindback traps. And I don't really see mindback traps working out in the elves' mirror. I, th I, th I feel it's just bad, especially on the play, because you want to go for it as soon as possible and mindback traps are just going to to hinder you so he was he was so glad he hit the mindback traps in the opening hand so when i thought seized him and i saw the mindback trap i later told him i, I felt pretty good about it but, but so did he yeah but yeah then i played i mean i'm kind of reserved i'm kind of reserved about mindback trap in general and elves but uh yeah that's just west coast <laughs> magic for you yeah we can talk about it later because i feel mindback trap is not doing what most people think it's meant to do but yeah so in the next round i was playing against imperial painter and he didn't really know what was going on he was 4-0 but i think he hadn't played a lot of legacy because he had to read like every elf confirm every interaction and i feel he could should have just played his ensnaring bridge because he wouldn't know that i was actually running viridian shaman instead he just played out some random dudes didn't do a thing so i just ran him over 
uh, and after boarding, I think we discussed this already before, uh, I feel Elves is pretty much favored against Painter. So, yeah, that's th the next 2-0. So, in the sixth round, I was playing against this guy. He was playing Mud, or Stacks, or whatever you want to call it. And luckily, I won the die roll. Because, you know, on the first turn, he went like, Chalice 1. Second turn, Chalice 2. Third turn, well, he didn't get a third turn, because he just dies. <laughs> um... Uh, yeah, just, you know, accelerated on the first turn, played some guys on the second turn, and then natural order to the kill. So you sometimes get these totally random wins. Uh, so at this point you were 5-0, and right? At that point, uh, after the mud matchup, I was actually 6-0. and Okay. So you were, at this point, you were guaranteed at least a buy. At least one buy, um, yeah. 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 Nice. And, yeah, so... That was at least one buy, and if I drew the last round, I would have had two buys, but I actually wanted to go, you know, for the full amount, because if you're 7-0, you get a set of 10 Whitewater Dual Lands, which is pretty cool, about, I feel, 500 euros. So on the last round, I sit down. I actually sit down uh, in front of a person I've played before in Annecy, that was Rasmus from Denmark, who I played before, and he had come up with this very interesting brew. He was playing Bant Agro with... Um, Nemesis of Reason, no, no, <laughs> not Nemesis of, ne Nemesis of Reason, what's true, name, true Nemesis? name Nemesis, yeah, that's it. And I think it was kind of similar to what Reed Duke played some weeks ago in the Star City Games Open, but yeah, he included Nemesis, and I feel it's like the best shell you can have for Nemesis, especially with, you know, Noble Hierarch and Noble Hierarch, several equipments, but I knew he didn't have Force of Will in the main deck, so yeah, <laughs> I still just ran him over in the first game. And, yeah, he never got there in the second game, as I cited in some discard, took his force of fill, and, yeah, that's not a whole lot you can do. At the, so, at that point, I had won the trial, I uh, had already won, like, you know, five to six hundred euros, and it just felt great. I had three buys for the main event, and all the pressure was relieved, because I had already paid easily for, for the travel cost, and... Uh, for the accommodation and everything. So, yeah, that was, I think, the best thing that would, could have happened to me because, yeah, I don't feel as much pressure bef as I felt before during tournaments, but when you go to a big tournament as well half Mox and you really, really want to do well, and if, at least money-wise, you're relieved of any concerns, that's, that's, a, that's a real thing. And even if you, if you get to see, yeah, you're just doing it, you're... you're your preparation is working out. Every uh, every matchup works out the way you want it. Oh, it, it's just the most awesome thi thing ever. Yeah, when you when you run hard, you just unstoppable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> it, it's funny. Right now, I'm I feel thirty two two and two over the last four tournaments. That's insane. <laughs> actually, that's, that's actually pretty insane. Pretty good. Yeah, yeah, that, that's really good. Don't don't stop playing. Play the same thing. Yeah, I will. And uh, keep it up. So now I kind of had a question for you, because uh, you were talking about the Polish players and this and that. How at a tournament like this, especially in Europe, where you've got so many different languages and people possibly bringing, say, so many different languages of cards that you may not have seen before, or just speaking, not speaking the same language, how does that work out in a tournament? Because I think American players don't really have that issue oh, because of true. the, I never thought about the mono-English culture of America. I mean, you know, everybody speaks English. There are people who speak Spanish, but primarily... You know, they also understand English. So, how does that work out in a tournament such as Bazaar Moxon? Yeah, I would say um, first, there's actually two things. There's speaking English properly, and there's speaking what I call magic. 
because even if you can't speak English, you can speak magic to a certain amount. You know, you've you've got all these terms: attack, block, whatever, bounce. Everybody understands that. So, for in-game mechanics, it's very easily easy to communicate. But um, because I'm a very social player and I want to know everything about my opponent, where he's coming from, what he's doing, um, I just talk to them. And funnily enough, I feel everybody in Europe speaks pretty good English, except for. You know, the French people have a reputation for not actually being that good at English, and I don't know, I don't want to blame them. For, I think it's just maybe the... I don't know. There might be some reason in the educational system. But even then, I've met the, some people who speak the who spoke the best English you could imagine from, from Italy, from Spain, from, from France. So, especially the Eastern Europeans actually speak some of the very best English. So... Do so you, uh, Jacob, did you... I mean, I didn't have any problems at Bizarre Moxon in the spring with communication, I don't think. You know? I think I only had an issue in one match um, against the Spaniard. And I don't want to typecast against the Spanish, but uh, I think mostly it was uh, it's a very competitive player, and I'm a pretty competitive player as well. Uh, we had some miscommunication. I think we understood each other well, but I think in the circumstances, you know, we're, we're at 6-0, and we're playing with a huge crowd around us. I'm playing my Tin Fins deck, he's playing mud. I think that's what led to um, a feigned miscommunication, possibly. But I don't think I had too much of a uh, struggle communicating in terms of magic terms, in my experience. Yeah, I feel if you, really, if you really have issues with the language of your opponent, or the lack of actual language, um, you th I feel you should call over a judge just before the match actually starts. That's what I did at uh, GP Amsterdam. And I was like at, I think, 10 and 2 or 11 and 2, I was playing against this guy and he was playing Dredge which is a very technical deck, and so he really should make sure not to screw up. So I called over a judge who spoke some Spanish, at least better Spanish than I did, and he just watched over the match and made sure there was clear communication, so I think that's another thing you could do. Interesting. All my cards are in German and Russian anyway, so it's a moot point, I mean. <laughs> I mean, yeah, most of the time I think it's okay, because at, at least in... I would say in standard it's probably a little bit easier because there are, say, there are defined archetypes, there are, say, five good decks, and everybody knows what those decks are, whereas in Legacy it's possible you see, you know, a, a deck or an archetype that you haven't seen in a while, and you're kind of like, what card is this, what are you trying to do, what, you don't speak English, what's happening? So I, I could see that being a little bit of a problem sometimes, maybe. I think the biggest problem with communication I saw at the Basal of Moxon was actually over the Chach foil intuition. You know, my my friend, he was playing Omniclash, and he had this one white ley line in the main deck, and he actually dropped it in the mirror match in game one. And his opponent was like, yeah, this doesn't matter at all. So he cunning wished for intuition, and that uh, at that point I already felt, okay, there might be a problem at some point, because intuition <laughs> <laughs> does nothing if you, if you can't actually target the opponent. Unfortunately, he had the judge foil intuition, which actually says an opponent chooses one, chooses a card. And whereas oh, the actual oracle text says yeah, target. I think the oracle text says target. Opponent. Yeah, but, but that's yeah. that's it's part funny. of eternal magic. I mean, I I know, you know, I know ivory mask effects shut down intuition. So regardless of the language, if you're a well versed eternal player, you should know. I think how intuition works. Anyway, if you're if you played uh, Legacy or Vintage for five or six years, you probably know how intuition works. Yeah, you should. I had a similar experience with Oracle Text uh, over the weekend. I was playing Blue Red Painter and uh, playing Transmute Artifact, <laughs> Grindstone. So both these cards, opponent had to read a lot of times, and 
it was uh, it was a little tricky. Every time I played Transmute Artifact, my opponent's like, what does that do? And I'm like, let's call a judge just to make sure. And they're like, just tell me Vigis. I'm like, I get to tinker. And I mean, that, that's that's another big problem is like, when, when, it, when an opponent asks me to tell them what the card does, I just call a judge. Transmute Artifact is one that's that's particularly nasty because you pay the cost on resolution. So, you know, you get the artifact and then they think they can do something, but they can't. There's no priority when you pay the difference. And, you know, but and if you, you don't target which artifact you sacrifice either. Yeah, exactly. So if you read that card as it's worded in, in, in its, in its uh, Paleolithic uh, Antiquities form, you would get a completely different idea about what it does. I, I had another situation with an old card like Guardian Beast. And this guy's like, that's oh, fine, I can read it. And I was like, all right, you know, you you have the right to call a judge, you know. And I just, I started just EEing his crap away, and all my stuff just sat there. The E goes to the yard, but all my all my various lock pieces are just sitting there. And he's just confused, and it's because he didn't call a judge to get updated text on this this card that's probably older than him, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I once played a guy, he was nine, uh, like nine years old, or maybe even less, and I jokingly said, well, I think you can't even read most of my cards, and he looks at me and says, yeah, that's true. <laughs> In the last round, he had to play his own father, and I think he, oh he lost to him, and his dad, he was so mad because the guy, he didn't really try, he just, you know, put down some lands, cast some creatures, Wrath of God, doesn't even matter, and he, his father was like, come on, you should at least try to beat me, come on, I want you to be good at this, <laughs> and the kid, he, he just didn't care. <laughs> I never That's thought That's like uh, Arnold in Predator when he's, like, screaming at the Predator to kill him. Do it! Like, kill me now! You know? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> I know Arnold Schwarzenegger is awesome. I'll, I'll refrain from any more Arnold references. Uh, I think we should continue with the Arnold references. Get down! Get down again! Uh, I was I was playing True Name Bant this week, and we called it uh, Turbo Man Bant. And uh, after uh, after Arnold in uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, one of the movie where he runs around destroying Tom Arnold to try to get the Turbo Man action figure. Oh, oh last, last action, action hero. hero. Yeah. <laughs> also, too, uh, Commando. If you haven't seen Commando, you haven't lived. Uh, we, on, watched it, uh, we watched it twice on Netflix uh, during Eternal Weekend just to get ourselves pumped up. Come on, Bennett. You know what? I, I can't remember the entire quote, but it's like, let's potty. And it's just like, like Come yes. on, Bennett. You know you want to put that knife in me. And then does he, he, does he do, do his own synchronization of his, of his movies? There's a YouTube. No, no, he was he was speaking in English. Yeah, yeah the, so he doesn't have like some guy who does the English for him. No. <laughs> okay. It's just awful. <laughs> Maybe I should watch some English movies then. It's That's spectacular, Arnold. actually, but whatever. Anyway, so Sean, you were going to ask Julian about funny stories, and I've typed it multiple times. <laughs> so Sean. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, what was the what was the worst play you feel? You don't have to give their name, but was was there any just you know, we're going to touch on this later the level of play between Europe and the US, but but was there any just play your opponent made? You played a lot of rounds of magic over the over the course of Bazaar. Yeah, yeah. Where you yeah. just you just looked at him and went, "Oh my gosh." 
Well, let me. Okay, I've got my list of matchups over here, so just let me have a quick look here. Oh yeah, so there's. I think. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, let me let me continue with the easiest one. Um, so I was playing against this guy, and he had uh, Golgari Charm, which is kind of good against elves. So he was like, okay, um, I had elfish. What's it called? Elfish Visionary and Symbiote going on, so. I use uh, Symbiote to bounce the Visionary to, yeah, you know, play him again, draw a card, yeah. you, you know the trick. So he was like, okay, response to bouncing the Visionary, Golgari Charm. I was like, okay, so I guess I lose my Symbiote. No, 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 you will lose your Visionary as well. So no, that's part of the cost. So that was pretty awful. At that point, I was pretty, pretty high in the tournament. I don't want to say against which guy it was, but at least he... he, he didn't try to take it back or do something else, but that was really, really awful because he knew I was going for the combo on the next turn, so he could have easily disrupted me. I still think the play is fine. It's probably not the greatest play, but I think where it shows that he's not well-versed is saying that your visionary dies. I think getting rid of the symbiote is still a good idea. Yeah, don't get me wrong. The problem is, I will, I will play out the visionary again, and then he gets to... A, you know, kill both guys with the Golgari Charm. Exactly. That's the problem. That's why I said it wasn't the ideal yeah, play, it wasn't. But, you know. Yeah, but the, the fun part now is, so, he screwed up. So in the next game, I did the same, and he was like, okay, Golgari Charm again. And I looked at him and, okay, really? <laughs> and then he was like, yeah, but I, now I got you, because stifle the, <laughs> stifle the symbiote. Oh, oh man. <laughs> I was like, okay, so I don't get to untap my untapped symbiote, and you lose another card? That's fine. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. I can see how you won the tournament now. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone you played was missing a chromosome or something, and you're just like, oh, <laughs> I just get to 10 0. Yeah. Thanks, I, I guess that's a good way to win tournaments. Just sign up and wait for your opponents to mess up. <laughs> well, if you pour through some of the coverage of. I've seen it a few times on some of the SEG legacy streams where um, some elf. Some neophyte elf players actually run that deck completely into the ground. And yet they pull it out at the end because they just herp derp a crater hoof and run their opponent over. I mean, there was one in Atlanta where the elf player on camera just. He's playing against uh, Gerard Fabiano, I think. And he, he, he makes easily eight to nine mistakes, and Fabiano just can't find anything to do about just plain old Crater Roof attack you. <laughs> He's doing things like using the worst possible elf to power his Birch Lore, the one that doesn't untap, the Nettle Sentinel. It's like, he has six other elves to choose from. He chooses the one that does not untap, you know. It's just, ah, you just want to reach through the screen and strangle him. <laughs> uh, I think that is one of the most frustrating things as a spectator when uh, when you're actually watching a live match or even a rebroadcast and you recognize that can you guys hear me okay? It seems a little weak. No, you're good. Okay. Um, when you're when you're seeing an opponent do miss an obvious play and I think um, I think part of that, it really depends what time of the tournament, like what round of the tournament it is. So if you see it, for instance, in round 8 of 10 that's the kind of uh, play you may expect to see just because it's been a long day. Um, round two, there's not really an excuse. Yeah, yeah. My round one at Vintage Champs, I, I I actually kept a log of my errors in Vintage Legacy. I didn't really care as much about, but um, two of the three errors I made all day in Vintage occurred in my first match. You know, it was like just getting the rust off, and 
Okay, Sean, shut, shut that bitch up. <laughs> Isn't bitch like the... You murdered the, the dog. Wow, it actually oh, happened. Dog. Yeah, it's a female dog yeah. in the background. That's why I wanted to use a line. Yeah. I was like, ah, yeah, now's my chance. <laughs> Apparently his wife was lovely, so I didn't want to... Like, that's <laughs> not what I was going for at all. So... Okay, right, I wait. muted it. The dog is... The dog is... Uh, he has been echoing truth. Yeah, so game rule violations from uh, from Eternal Weekend. Do tell. Oh, yes. So, let me get my notes here in front of me. Um, Legacy, I got my second loss in the... Oh, first of all, just to set the stage. I mean, it was run really well. Um, everything... I, if you go to either the Managerine or uh, uh, the Source, there's people just gushing about how it was run, so I don't really want to hammer that into the ground, but... Um, the people from Card Titan slash Nick Koss um, just ran a really tight ship for a for what was really just a new. It, for all intents and purposes, this was a completely new tournament, you know. Um, because if you think about Legacy and Vintage Champs past, uh, they were all within the shell of Gen Con, and um, therefore the logistics of getting people signed up it was sort of left up to the Gen Con ticketing system. E.g., you bought your your vintage champs ticket through Gen Con and pastimes just kind of ran out like a normal magic tournament. So this for all intents and purposes was a ground up tournament. Um, it was in a new city for some people. I've been to Philly before for conventions and whatnot. Um, so I knew their location was going to be just prime fucking real estate in Philly, which is, which was great. Tons of food it's right next to Chinatown. Uh, there's a Reading market and the guy who was running it is, is, uh, I don't know him personally, but he, you know, he's kind of known in the community as a, uh, being more concerned about the community as a whole in his own, you know, uh, vintage play. I've actually played him at Gen Con at the Big Friday event. So he did an awesome job. The judge staff was on point. You know, they had people who knew Eternal cards. I don't think I ever waited more than 10 seconds for a judge to come over. Uh, we were a little squeezed Saturday on space, but um, having experienced Bizarre Moxon and Annecy, I realized that it actually wasn't that bad, um, where we were just like shoulder to shoulder. And, and, and it kind of spread out as the weekend continued. They were running some side events. But uh, overall, it was awesome. You know, I, I'm definitely going back next year. And uh, I do think Legacy was probably a little underrepresented. I think, you know, I think that's always been the case. I think the Vintage event is the marquee event of the two championships. Um, there were people there on Saturday that were just there, that had Legacy decks, but were just there for Vintage. I mean, probably half my room just didn't care much about Legacy. I didn't particularly care that much about Legacy either. Um, just because I get to play it every week, or twice a week, so it just didn't really hold the same allure for me. And um, you also had some big names in the vintage community, for what that's worth. Um, I guess that's like being a big name in the uh, quilt crocheting community, but still, it's, you know, several former champs were there, and so um, so it was pretty exciting. The, the Legacy, I got my second loss in the fifth round after I sent a 50-yard punt down to my roommate. Um, and we were on splits anyway, so if either of us had won, we were going to get the money. So I played Mud, Metalworker, and Legacy. And um, I think it was an okay choice, you know. but I, as with any of those decks, you your draws can be shaky. I lost the die roll quite a bit. Example being, round one, I lose to Patriot Delver. And he basically wins the game with his, his fetch non-basic land, which it turns out he didn't have any basic lands. Uh, Delver, I untap, I land the Chalice on one, he natural flips the Delver, 
And he wins the game with no other permanence other than his flip Delver because I'm just ghost quartering and wasting him out of the game. I just couldn't get a threat. Tabernacle. Maze of Ith. Find it in your deck with no card movement. I mean, that's the crystal, crystal ball. <laughs> crystal kugel, okay? Yeah, I, I actually was... Spine of Ishaw. Come on. I was... <laughs> Come on, Sean. You've been hammering at people about spine. I would have killed for a crystal ball, but um, but anyway, it, yeah, that that didn't go so well. Um, then I, I reeled off a couple wins. My my first GRV of the week was against a dredge player who managed... I think it was round three of Legacy. I'm 1-1, I'm one, one, um, and he, he gets two GRVs in one match. One is... Trinisphere is in play, and I'm staring at it. He's doing all this stuff, and I know exactly what he's thinking. He's just staring at this dread return, and he's gonna, he's gonna flame, or yeah, he's, he's gonna grizzle brand me, and blah 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 blah. And I've stripped him, you know, I've wasted him out of the game. I just see it coming like a fucking Persian mile away. He finally gets a bunch of tokens, and he's got enough narcomibas. He like he gets God Dredge, gets all the narcomibas, and he goes to sack them all and put uh uh. Dread return on the stack, and I was like, Judge, three ball. So that was the first one. So, so he's trying to figure out on the fly what Trinisphere does in German. And he's <laughs> he's pretty much flustered at this point, and he, uh, he's shaking at this point, talks with the judge, trying to even understand what a GRV does, and then he passes the turn <laughs> with eight cards. So the judge is not even like a foot away from the table, and I'm like, Judge, and he's got eight cards. So he got two, or I ended up beating him. Um, so those are the first two GRVs, but, um, just a new player trying to play dredge in a legacy tournament, you know, against the deck. What a, what a hell of a way to say hello. Welcome to the format. Here's two <laughs> GRVs. He actually, Sean, Sean O'Brien, ambassador to eternal magic. Ladies and community <laughs> ambassador. He actually almost, he had me near lethal, but, uh, during his end step, uh, I had an active forge master and when his Icarid was about to get binned, I was able to, uh, Forge Master away my Forge Master to bend his bridges to get a Blight Steel to kill him, but so that was that was actually relatively close. Then I crushed a Delver deck. Then going into the next round was when I played against my roommate and I punted the ball. I had him with Sundering Titan, and then I'm two things. One, when I'm playing against my friends, I play poorly. I don't concentrate. I, I usually play better against people I hate, um, which is everyone else except my roommates and people I know. So. I just didn't have any focus, so I punted against him, which was fine. I think overall his deck probably had a better chance to money anyway. Um, he was on Miracles. Um, Brian Plattenberg, he, he's been playing Miracles pretty much exclusively for like two years. So over a long tournament, he he definitely had a better shot of moneying than I did. Um, so that was Legacy, whatever. Vintage I was on. Uh, I posted it on the source, but basically like nine strip mine shops. Um, my, yeah, it looks, it looks like, like a beautiful, beautiful deck. deck. Yeah, and I made a conscious choice. You know, obviously there's like four to six land slots that you can kind of play around with in shops. You can, uh, if you're playing the more controlling stacky version, you're going to play maybe Buried Runes or Factories. Um, if you're playing maybe a more explosive version like Metalworker, you're probably going to play Cavern. Um, so I was playing kind of an in-between one, and I was just banking on, I saw in the, in the Friday prelims and the Saturday prelims, Tons of decks with just junk mana. Either A, you're going against the shop mirror, in which case all those effects are strip mine. Um, a lot of like four color keeper stuff with like an island. No other basics. So um, what I didn't face or see in Friday or Saturday in, in scouting around was, you know, these five or six merfolk decks floating around the room with like 11 islands. Um, 
And so, you know, that choice ended up not really working out for me. Um, the decks that I lost to pretty much had, you know, above three basic islands. So the Ghost Quarter route is just, at that point, is really circuitous. It's slower. They would have been better off being either factories or ports. Um, so I also lost the, the die roll in my first five rounds, I think. I, I posted a brief report on the drains. And, you know, not to say that that's all the match, but when you're on shops, it's a pretty big deal. It's a reasonably big deal. Anyway, um, I think it, I think it'd be safe to say that it would be hard to win a nine-round vintage tournament on shops if you didn't win the die roll at least half the time against competent players. So, Yeah, I, I can confirm that. Playing shops is like um, winning... Especially like let's say nine rounds. Playing shops for nine rounds is like winning nine coin flips. And if you can't win the coin flip, you're not doing so hot. And the and the and the prospect of having nine strip mines and three crucibles hedges you a little bit against the coin flip because um, you can just win an attrition war against a deck on one sphere if you have crucible one of my nine strip mines. But the um, you know I lost to Oath, Merfolk, and I drew first round with a player who got a couple of GRVs, and I, I draw, yeah, I draw two losses, I, th I think, I'll have to look at my turn report again, anyway, I finished 80th or something pathetic, but um, I don't think the deck was awful, I just, um, I just think I made a poor choice, um, I made a, I made one player in round one, which was, uh, I had a wasteland up, and I, I was trying to fire, it was in the midst of doing a really, a finely designed play, he, he tinkered for Blightsteel, and he was at a life total such that I could attack with my worm coil and my steel hellkite. I had to get he had to block my worm coil with his blight steel, but I had to get the life gain from lifelink or I was going to die to my own lightning bolt machine during my upkeep. And so anyway, I swing in, I get the tokens of course to block the blight steel on the backswing. And but while whilst fire breathing with my Hollandrock, or I mean this may have been the Russian one. Anyway, I'm splitting hairs, but um I tapped my mana incorrectly when I was fire breathing, which is a skill you learn when you're like six and you actually start <laughs> playing Magic the Gathering for the first time and you have like some giant shitty dragon. You learn how to fire breathe early on, and I just had forgotten that skill. So I mistapped my mana. I should have used a pearl when I had a wasteland up, and I should have uh, I should have just wasted him post combat to keep a few narrow situations from beating me. So I made an error there. It ended up, and it ended up not mattering because on the backswing I correctly blocked with both worm tokens, and he had like bolt in hand or repeal or whatever. So, but anyway, it was it was all it was all fun. I, I loved playing sanctioned vintage, and um, every opponent I played pretty much was a, a nice person, and that's one of the advantages of playing vintage, so as opposed to standard playing children and other people that I want to set on fire. So, all right. Well, it sounds like you had a, a great time. Um, maybe we can, uh, start going into the similarities between Eternal Weekend and Bizarre Moxon. Um, pretty much just last weekend we had, um, both Legacy and Vintage, um, events in two continents. So, um, Bizarre Moxon obviously in Europe, and, um, same formats, Legacy on Saturday, Vintage on Sunday. Um, congrats again to Julian for Bizarre Moxon Vintage win. Legacy. Um, Legacy, that's right. Uh, looks like this uh, vodka orange screwdriver is really starting to hammer me. <laughs> hmm. 
Um, but yeah, look, we had uh, close to 700 people for the legacy portion of Bazaar of Moxon. Uh, we had about 360 players for Eternal Weekend um, Legacy. And we also had a Legacy tournament in uh, Los Angeles, Star City Open, uh, about 280 players. So oh, Nobody cares about that, though. Right, I didn't win, so it's like not that big of a deal. You got a deck tech, and yet you didn't plug the podcast. What an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was thinking on my feet. I didn't actually think I would get a deck tech. but uh, And then, of course, right after the deck tech, I lose two rounds in a row because of the curse of a deck tech. But uh, between those three tournaments, we had um, close to 1,300 um, players playing sanctioned high-level Legacy. And that's, that's pretty big news. What do you think, Matt? I think it was, I mean, it's all good. I mean, I think a lot of people playing Legacy is always a good thing. The more people we have playing more Legacy means more results we can actually draw upon, and the more statistically significant they can be. I mean, usually when there's, you know, small tournaments, small number of players, you know, variance happens. However, this is a good thing to see. I mean, the results were a little bit more interesting. Uh, I think because Eternal Weekend was a little bit smaller, it was only the size of, like, an East Coast Star City Games Open, and it was the first one. I don't think the results are necessarily as good or as concrete as the Bizarre of Moxon results where we, you know, you got 700 plus people. I think the metagame the metagame changes that we saw at Bizarre of Moxon will carry into Grand Prix Washington and I think that's stuff we should look at whereas I think Eternal Weekend is something to keep in mind to basically know that there are Death and Taxes decks and Rug Delver decks still in the format. However, other than that, I don't think we can take too much from Eternal Weekend, especially with the quality of play that we saw on the uh, on the streams. That was, in fact, quite disappointing. I don't know about you, but that's what I saw. Julian, what do you think? Yeah, you know, I didn't actually get to watch the stream for all the uh, Eternal Weekend, but I feel yeah, 700 people is, a, is really a lot. I mean, it's close to close to some cheap, smaller GPs we've we've seen. I think um, Basar of Moxon made a very good choice to actually split the tournament into two days, because before that you had like you know ten rounds and then even more rounds, and it continued way late into the night. So splitting up was a really good choice. So this also improves the quality of play. Uh, sadly, I've shown some very poor quality of play in my feature match, you know, against Jamie Westlake playing uh, at Museum Tendrils. But other than that, I believe you can actually draw a lot of conclu conclusions, um, especially from Basar of Moxen. So, uh, there's... I mean, yeah, I won with elves, but when I look at the top tables, it's been like... Storm, Death in Texas, some kind of show-and-tell variant, although it didn't make it actually to the top 8. But most importantly, almost no Rakdalva, and I think that's really important, because Rakdalva is still one of the very top decks in the format, but for some reason, it just couldn't cut it in the Basar of Moxen. So well, I think the last Grand Prix we had in Europe uh, for Legacy, we saw um, a Canadian national, actually. Um, oh, yeah! Jacob Wilson. Jacob Wilson bring the Canadian threshold and represent his uh, his transplant country. I know he's from California, but he's a Canadian uh, college student now. Um, and he seemed to have struggled against Death and Taxes, which um, I think from Team Rocket, that's uh, that's kind of their trademark legacy deck at this time. Yeah. Most of the Danish players actually play Death and Taxes in Legacy. Also, I've talked to some of them, and they were like, you know, we can't actually beat the true name Nemesis, so we switched decks 
but Michael Bonde and and oh no, Michael Bonde was actually playing elves as well. So it was just uh, Thomas Ennevoldsen, who still stuck to Death in Texas, and he said his choice to actually combat the de the true name Nemesis was not to find a way to kill it or to block it, but actually to just be faster and better. And that's why he had Sword of Fire and Ice on the side. I think even in the main deck. Because with uh, Sword of Fire and Ice, you actually get to attack through the true name Nemesis and deal at least yeah more damage than the Nemesis will deal to you. So right, I think it's four extra damage and you get to draw a card. Get a little deeper, yeah. yeah Until yeah, you so actually put a Sword of Fire and Ice on your true name Nemesis, which I did three times this past week at the Wednesday. Like so so. That's, yeah, so you're next leveling everybody now. And then my Eruptacay kills your sword... And then you only get to deal three. Wah, wah. Yeah, but, but yeah, yeah, but you also run. Uh, okay, Mother of Runes doesn't doesn't actually protect the sword. That's true. <laughs> but Apostle Blessing does. Guide. Yeah. Yeah, Space Guide. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what kind of deck are we building now? Like Mother well, uh, of Runes, True Nemesis. Once we have once we have Spells Guide in there, might as well just add Goblin Welder and add Intuition, so you can really deal <laughs> your opponent. Hey, that sounds like a really sweet deck that I played last week. <laughs> so, what do you think about True Nemesis, though, Julian? Um. Well, obviously, I don't really care much about it, uh, being an F's player, but uh, loving Legacy in general, I think it's just a very stupid card. I think it's good, it's very good, it's not, you know, it's not nearly close to the edge of being broken. It's just stupid, you know, it's it's like in a way Terminus is stupid, and I know people love Terminus and Miracles and whatever, but I think especially this over-the-top hexproof is, is just stupid. Why would you want that? Do you uh, think it would have been more fair if it had been printed like progenitus projection from everything well it's not actually being about fair it's just being about fun because you want interaction you want to uh, i mean even progenitus is, is pretty stupid but uh at least it's got such a productive mana cost yeah you have to go through a big effort to put it into play big investment you, have to, you tell, actually have to build your, genesis or natural yeah you, you have to to build your deck around it with nemesis yeah you still want to build your deck around it but not to actually make it work but to make it work even better you know, you play equipment and, and noble hierarchs and stuff, but even on its own, the, the it's just such a strong, strong card with very little ways to interact, so it actually robs the metagame in a way that you have to... Either you don't care about it, or you're playing it, or you've got a way to deal with it. So I don't like cards like that, you know. I liken it to Geisa Saint Draft in a way that um, it's a very hard hitter, and there's very little you can do about it outside the stack. I uh, I played uh, I played it this week. One of the one of the frustrating glares I got was from the the green white, even with a little bit of black maverick player who, yeah, even in his worst case, the blue hammer is a, you know, is a quasi moat, and his frustration was was just having past the turn moments where he just couldn't come up with a fruitful attack, you know, unless he has a mother out that can that can give it protection and send a knight through. Um he's just kind of stuck, you know, that uh the deck doesn't swarm like goblins, you know. So he he was frustrated by that and then pretty much once I won the equipment war, I was playing stone forges. The game was basically over. I mean, it's just really difficult to race that thing with a Sophie on it if it has a jit on it. Any creature uh, interaction is pretty much fruitless. And also, I mean, if you're using your mother early to give Knight Pro Blue to force him through, I mean, you're just opening yourself up to get pounded by a sword, you know, or a path. 
Um, so it is it is frustrating for a player to not be able to interact with that stupid thing. And um, I don't think it's good for the game either, really. It's not just attacking. It's, it's it, People forget. Geist can't really block profitably. This thing can block profitably. Throw in a Scrib Ranger, and he's retarded. He attacks every turn, and then he untaps and blocks their best guy. Like, my thing is, like, I don't feel like, like, what was, this card definitely was not a commander card when they were printing it. Like, commander protection from a single player in a multiplayer game of commander doesn't mean anything. So my thing is, when they were thinking up this card, what were they trying to fill? What kind of hole were they trying to patch in the legacy metagame where somebody or a group of players was like, hey, I get, I don't get to have this, what fun am I not having? Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what they're doing why this was printed. <laughs> I don't know. Merfolk was underperforming, so let's give it the blue hammer. I don't know. Yeah. Especially after the two years ago when we got Mental Mist up, it was just like, really? It's like, I know you're trying to target for the Legacy format, but you're like swinging for the fences and you're just sailing the ball out of a park. <laughs> What's really going to be awesome is when somebody breaks Prowl. Oh, the Prowl cost? Yeah, he's a rogue. Yeah. Are there even oh, any, any good prowl cards? <laughs> um, there's um, Earwig Squad, which is yeah, uh, come on. pretty decent. <laughs> in Vintage Earwig Squad is pretty strong, but yeah. Yeah, there aren't that many decks in uh, in Legacy where just nugging three cards is exciting. Unless you're getting all their Terminuses. Yeah, or true. fighting against combo. Yeah, that's true. There's a Prowl Time Walk, I believe. Uh, oh, is it? I think I think it's fucking terrible. Hold on, let me go. You guys carry on with your discussion, and I'll I'll get prowl up. Is it uh, temporal mastery? I think that's the. Uh... Yeah, but that's not that's not prowl. Prowl. That's smirk. So Julian, uh, right before as we uh, wrap up, uh, yeah. do you have any interesting stories, maybe not related to the tournament itself, but uh, from the trip and uh, maybe some of the backroom dealings that uh, may have gone on <laughs> back there? Yeah, yeah. You know, Basar of Moxen even though it's usually smaller than the Leg Legacy Grand Prix for Europe, it's still, like, the central, most important Europe for the entire, uh, event for the entire European Legacy scene. And it's so, so good to go there and, you know, meet all your friends from all around Europe. I think I've made friends in, you know, Russia, Finland, Spain, Denmark, you know, like everywhere, just by going to Bazaar of Moxen and getting to know people and... I feel especially for one guy who I run into like at every big European legacy event. Uh, I have to mention him. It's Sergei from from Moscow, because you see this guy, he actually comes to Paris. He doesn't get to play because he's uh, with, his, with his girlfriend. But he still both come to the event and they stay there and they cheer for me. And at, at some point, you know, when I was attacking with um, three. Vibrate symbiotes, and my opponent just couldn't find a solution for it. He he was he was there standing behind me, dancing, going like yo yo insect zombie insect zombie yo yo. <laughs> it's 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 just so awesome, you know. And also the entire the the, the spirit of of yeah, the, they always say it's like the spirit of eternal. I think that's the the, the motto of Bazaar of Moxen. It's just a way to actually celebrate the format and play competitively which you don't really get to experience at a Grand Prix. And they've got these these nice little tweaks, you know. So when I was playing on the first table on the second day and was playing there actually quite a lot, there was this French, this young French lady, her name was Julia, and she had her sketchbook 
and she would dr actually draw you and th um, maybe I can hook, hook you up with a, with a picture of her drawings and so when you're playing on the first page uh, on the first table she would just be standing there and draw you while you were lost in thought or uh, I don't know some kind of brainstorm or whatever you were playing and then after the match she comes to you she shows you the drawing and asks for your autograph so you just feel like you know the coolest celebrity in the entire world and I don't know if that's actually organized by the Basar of Moxen stuff themselves or if she just came here you know on her own but it's just these very nice little things that that makes you embrace the entire event and and just feel great about it also the I mean you don't really run into a lot of scumbags I mean I haven't played somebody I would consider a scumbag in, in the entire event everybody was nice everybody was was really relaxed and even when we played for the big money everybody was just feeling great so yeah we are here we're having a great time so yeah that's that's why the south mox i feel is such such a cool event and i think kobe you didn't really have the greatest time when you came over was it a friend of yours to honestly um, i think he was sent yeah to i think hospital. it was uh, i think it was sean actually he uh he oh really not such a great time. Hey, Sean, how much was that uh, hospital bill for? Uh, oh, dude, it was your, for getting that noggin back. Yeah, it was. It was fine. It was uh, eighty euros, which is a steal. I mean, so so props <laughs> to the French uh, French public health care system. That's like three thousand dollars in America. Right. That was like an ambulance ride, and you know, some saline in my arm or whatever, as my noggin was whacked. And uh, yeah, I I, mean, I I had a great time at the event. I I, I echo. Um, uh, I echo your sentiments, Julian. I, I everyone at Bizarre Moxin and Assey was really nice. I mean, everyone goes way out of their way to come out to this little town and play magic. So it's hard to be a douchebag, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, yeah, um, exactly. I think most of my complaints were really with the maybe French attitude, not related to the tournament. So, for instance, uh, traveling in France on a holiday. Is yeah, really frustrating. yeah. Oh, that's totally frustrating. We tried to find a restaurant on Friday night. And we were walking like for one hour through the rain and, and almost a s some kind of thunderstorm and we just couldn't find a restaurant because everything was closed. And I have no idea what's wrong with France. That's not the way it works in, in Germany. Right. So I think I think that's the experience that we're really frustrated with when we went to travel. Ah, okay. The tournament okay. itself was uh, was really very pleasant. Um, a lot of high competition uh, opponents, very high class as well. And... Um, just a general good time. Everyone's just happy to be there, happy to be playing um, competitive magic and having a good time while it. I mean, I would say the same thing about Sunday Vintage Champs. It, it's the same vibe. Everyone there feels like they're friends with everybody they're playing against. And, you know, not so much maybe for Legacy on Saturday, but, uh, you know, the more exclusive pool of people that can play sanctioned vintage in the u.s on, on sunday i definitely got the same vibe i, I got the same vibe i got playing uh, vintage in uh, bizarre moxie hey julian i got a question for you um how did the top eight for bizarre moxie go for you uh the top eight yeah it's yeah <laughs> so when the top eight was announced all the players uh, gathered at at the standings and the head judge he came over and he asked us whether we wanted to actually split the entire top eight. So I think everybody was kind of open about splitting, except for Timo Schunemann. He said we should just play, you know, for, for, for the semifinals and then just split in the semifinals. But unfortunately, I had to play another German guy, and usually our plan is just to crush everybody in the quarterfinals and then split in the semifinals. The problem with Passau of Moxen is that it's very, very, very top-heavy regarding prices. So... When the judge came over, we asked him, yeah, you see, what does the dealer propose to us? Because 
what we decided on, we will just sell back the cards directly to the dealer and he will provide money for us. So we calculated the entire top eight prices and we came out about, I think, 15,000 euros. So wow. Yeah, I think it was a little less than 15,000 euros. But you also have to Im imagine there was like 700 people and everybody was paying around four, 40 bucks, 40 euros for it. Yeah, that's like that's close to like $20,000 for top eight alone. Yeah, yeah. So uh, what he offered to us was 1,800 euros for everybody. Uh, I think I'm allowed to speak about this. Uh, I don't think why I wouldn't be, but yeah. If not, we'll cut it out. <laughs> hey, you have a winner. You have a representative, right? <laughs> yeah, you see, I, I think that's no problem. I, I think everybody knows what happened. So he comes over to us and he says, okay, the shop owner or the organizer, he offers 1,800 euros to everybody in the top eight. So we run some calculations and we see we're coming like about 600 euros short of, of the market value, but that's like... That's including fine. all the hassle for selling actually black powder power nine 40 dual lands black powder dual lands so it's even less than 100 euros on every player so we decided yeah we will definitely split because on top of that even had you gone to the semi-finals and lost you would have received less than these 1800 euros because the pay payout is so top heavy and even if you go to the finals and lose you will get about let's say 2200 euros which yeah the variance is just too high at that point. Even though I had pretty good matchups uh, aside from Storm, I felt, yeah, we, we would just go for it. So what happened? Sounds like uh, the game theory prevails here. To split is too better than to lose. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So what happened? Um, they told us, the moment you lose, you should uh, urgently come to the head judge. So obviously I was the last person to actually... Uh, actually, I didn't lose at all. So... <laughs> <laughs> So after the tournament, I had my, my little talk with Rafael Levy on camera. You might have seen it. And uh, then the head judge calls for me. So I, I go over, my, my winner's picture is taken, and I'm so glad they didn't take the, uh, take the one where I was holding the Quirion Ranger right into the camera because oh, you know no. about uh, attacking with the summoning Quirion Ranger without noticing it. So that the, had, I, had they taken that picture, <laughs> I would have been kind of awkward. <laughs> <laughs> Look, so. guys, look at how I won. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> the infamous raging Quirin Ranger. Did somebody. S did you should have gotten your um, final opponent to sign that Quirin Ranger. Maybe when I meet him again. Yeah, <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> no. I think here in America, you would get punched for that. He was very relaxed about it. I think he already knew he wouldn't be winning this match, anyways, but still, you know, it's it kind of hurts the tournament in a certain way, and I really feel sorry for it. Uh, yeah. So what uh, happens so after the tournament? The uh, head judge calls us over, or about me now, um, and he directs me to some of his other low, lower level judges, his goons. I don't know. So this guy, he was like, "Okay, come on, follow me." And he was very, very. He, he looked very, very, very serious. And I was like, huh, "What's going on? Uh, I have no idea what's going." He looked really serious. So and he was just like, "Follow me, come with me." Okay. So I walked to some very back room, dark, kitchen, I have no idea, room. And there was this other guy, and he was looking at me and was like, okay, sir, here's your envelope. And I was like, okay. And I still didn't know what was going on. Open it and count the money in front of me. And I was oh! <laughs> and then it dawned upon me what was going on, because it really felt like some, you know, drug dealing. What <laughs> it, it just felt 
really weird because I didn't know what was going on. Somebody said, yeah, just, uh, he, I remember like two rounds ago, he was telling the guy who lost in the quarterfinals, just follow this guy and he will give you some some good things. And I, I didn't know, hell, was this like some extra bonus for getting to the top? I, I didn't know. <laughs> uh, so I sit down, open the envelope and there's like, endless 50 euro notes in it uh so i still got them lying like next to me i spent some of them today but yesterday and I flip was through them over your microphone flip through them so we oh can hear them boy. oh i can wow, hear them. that's a lot of euro <laughs> too bad you didn't get the 500 euro notes so you could like make a cape out of them <laughs> uh so it was mostly 50 euro notes and some 20s and i sat there like oh please 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 make this come out to 1100 uh, uh, 800 I don't want to count again and yeah luckily enough it was exactly the amount so yeah I just took the money and put it in my backpack like very down 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 uh, and just hoped to not get dropped on the way to the hotel <laughs> yeah I, I actually uh, of course I invited all my friends you know who I was, I was traveling with to to the any hotel uh, any any restaurant of their choice so yeah that was just kind kind of a, a really really great way to just celebrate because the entire you know munich nuremberg legacy crew which is about 30 i'd say about 30 people was there and everybody after each round everybody was like hey how did it go for you yeah i won again yeah that's great and when i was in the top eight everybody was like yeah come on you will do it you will and it's just so awesome you know you, these people you've been playing magic with for i'd say about seven years now uh being there during your biggest accomplishment yeah it just felt so awesome also, another very, very impressive moment for me was kind of like, you know, talk actually talking to Raphael Levy in private later, because he was staying at the same hotel, and, you know, close to midnight, when I was, I was just on my laptop browsing the source and, and trying to explain to my sister why there were so many people actually posting on my Facebook wall and going crazy and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> She, she was like, "Are you famous now?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. She actually asked whether I was famous now. <laughs> and <laughs> what, what this stupid card game? No, come on, really. What are you doing in Paris? <laughs> well, are you doing, dealing drugs in the back alley? In the kitchen? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what I should told her. <laughs> I don't know. So, so close to midnight, actually, Raphael Levy comes along. And a friend of mine asked him, hey, you, uh, Raphael, you want to play some mind magic? And he was like, yeah, for sure, no problem, I want to play mind magic. So what happens is, while most people leave the room, and we're just sitting there in the lobby, uh, me and a friend, we've been talking and playing with Raphael, Mag uh, Raphael Levy, <laughs> and he gives this kind of very inspiring talk about competitive play. And he tells us how he started off when he was like 15 years ago, uh, 15 years old, which might even be more than 15 years ago. Yeah, he's he's 32 now. Uh, he was this kid, and all he wanted to do was to win. And you know, to a certain extent, I still feel bad about wanting to win because what I actually say is I want to play perfectly. I want to to challenge myself and play perfect. And he was like, "Yeah, screw that. You want to win." And actually, to a certain extent, it's true. I just want to win because it's awesome. Pl playing your best possibly magic, which I still didn't do at the Basar of Moxen, but uh, fortunately enough, it was enough. And he just gave this talk of, yeah, you just play, you just win. He, he told us about how to prepare for a pro tour, how he actually feels like completely wasted and exhausted after preparing for a pro tour for two weeks, then playing in the pro tour, arriving home, and everything just 
falls down on him and he has to to rest for an entire week almost do nothing and this was i don't know he encouraged me to play more more outside of legacy and while i will still play legacy as the most important format i think i want to try something else like i will go to grand prix vienna mainly for the legacy side event but at least i will try to play in the in the main event in day two and see where it goes uh yeah so we sit there like until three in the morning and Raphael just keeps talking and and explaining how he feels magic has developed and uh no two viewers or listeners he also hates modern he thinks it's just the worst format in the entire world and he actually enjoys legacy a lot uh you might know he's playing miracles in it and what he wanted to do he actually wanted to play in the bazaar of moxen so he played in a trial in toulouse which is i believe in southern france and he lost in the semi-finals, so he didn't have any buys for the Basar of Maxen. <laughs> so wh what he actually did was call up the organizers and was like, yeah, you know, guys, I would love to play in your tournament. Maybe you can give me three buys. That would be awesome. They were like, yeah, come on, Rafael, you're drunk, go home. <laughs> 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 so he decided he wanted to do the coverage, and I think he did a pretty good job at, at covering the event. And I can definitely, I can certainly say that... Um as an American and maybe even just a representative of North America, we were very happy to see that the coverage was indeed in English. Yeah. Um, last uh, last May, um, I was watching some of the coverage, and it's very hard to follow um, without knowing French. Um, <laughs> yeah. Even for a match, like I was watching some of the replays of my matches, and it's very hard for me to follow what the announcers are saying. So kudos to Raphael um, for kind of raising the bar and providing kind of an international um, angle on the coverage because that, that allows a lot of viewers um, outside of France or outside of Europe to follow along and get into the form. Yeah, I also feel it was really important for Raphael to be there because it feels he actually has a grip on what's going on in Legacy and Modern, although he's not playing as much as we uh, likely do. Uh, he still knows what's going on because the other guy, and he was a really nice guy, but he, I don't know... When I was talking against Jamie, he was going back and forth about how Ruik Thar actually triggers for each storm copy, and Raphael was trying to to actually explain to him why that's stupid on so many levels. Because first of all, you don't get to the storm you need against Ruik Thar, and second, it doesn't work that way. And, and you, he, you really felt how how desperate Raphael was to actually explain to to his co-commentator about what was going on. And I think the best part about the whole stream, which I watched later, was they were going over vintage deck lists, and they were looking at it and analyzing it, and then you really felt like the other guy, I think his name, his nickname is, is Tolki, he felt like he needed to say something, because Raphael was doing all the talking and analyzing, and he just felt like, you know, unneeded. So he looks at the deck list, and he says, huh... There's a lot of one-offs in this deck list. <laughs> <laughs> and Raphael looks at him for like two or three seconds and says like, yeah, that's because this is vintage. They are restricted cards. And he feels like a complete fool and it felt so bad for him at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I couldn't really imagine how the coverage would have gone without him. I think there were some other notable legacy players who didn't make it to day two who offered to step up. But I think uh, Raphael already did a pretty good job here. Conversely, in Eternal Weekend, we got uh, Randy Bueller got a week off from running Magic Online or whatever he's... What the fuck? You had Randy Bueller? Yeah, we had Randy Bueller <laughs> and I think... Um, and Chris Pecula. Matt Elias. Well, Matt Elias did the Legacy okay, portion. Okay, yeah. and 
and I actually noticed uh, a couple days leading into it, he was tweeting about some of his preparation for um, for coverage. So he mentioned, you know, he he printed out 28 deck lists for, you know, playable legacy decks, and you know, I, I went out of my way and was like, Matt, you're you're a great resource to this community, and stepping really stepping up um, the quality of, of commentating by preparing, you know, essentially preparing for what you may see on camera, understanding how the decks work, and Matt Elias is definitely not a stranger to um, to writing. He's written for Star City in the past and kind of put that hat aside to uh, spend more time with his family. But uh, he has a very good insight onto legacy format. And specifically, he's a huge fan of elves, so it's kind of ironic oh. that, uh, um, that y you were able to do so well. But he, he provided a really good commentary for the legacy side, and I think Chris Pakula and Randy Bueller did the vintage side of Eternal Weekend. And that was very interesting to see and, and listen to, and they provided a lot of good um, flow for the matches as they went. They also provide a bit of excitement. Like, you know, you can just hear it in Randy's, Randy's inner nerd comes out when he, uh, uh, when something exciting happens in Vintage. You can just hear it in his voice that he's just super excited that somebody's going to try to cast Forgotten Ancient in a Vintage match, you know. And um, <laughs> so that was kind of cool. It's also worth noting Randy Bueller is sitting in that seat because of me since... He beat me in the PTQ finals that put him in PTQ that he won that allowed him to get his job with Watsi. So, Randy, if you're listening, you're welcome. We should definitely forward this copy over to uh, Wizards R&D. <laughs> Make sure they hear it. <laughs> so, I actually just wanted to kind of add on to what Julian was saying before and what, what uh, Raphael Levy had actually said. And I would like to respectfully disagree with uh, both your and Levy's opinion. I think, Julian, your original opinion about wanting to play perfectly is actually a little bit more accurate. Because I'm sure we all want to win. I mean, we all walk into a tournament and go, okay, you know, let's take this thing down, let's top eight, let's do whatever. However, I think with a format as diverse as Legacy, and as big as of a card pool that there is, I think there are times when you just get totally, totally fucked by the matchups you face. Because you might be like, okay, well, I'm good against, you know, Shardless Bug, and I have a decent dredge matchup, and I've packed sideboard hate for this, and then you face... Mono white stacks as the storm player, <laughs> and you just get shit all over. And even if you make zero mistakes, there's nothing that you could have done to control that that person decided to bring that deck that day to fuck you over because for some reason that person likes playing mono white stacks. So I think I think ideally, in an ideal world, we all want to win. We all want to play well to win. But I think a more realistic approach or or way to think about playing in large eternal tournaments is making as few mistakes as possible, having fun, and you know what? If you get to kind of dodge the matchups that really are super awkward for your deck, then awesome. You get to have the chance to win. But I think most of the time, I think I think we should be decently content with playing as the best that we can. Yeah, it's many about your attitude if you lose. Because you can always be mad about losing, not of, of course not mad at your opponent, just mad about losing in general, but at least you should know why you lost. And if you lost because the matchup is so bad for you, well, that's, that's fine. It's nothing you could have actually changed about. So just accept it and try the next time. So it's, it's just variance, you know. Once you actually learn to accept variance, it gets so much easier dealing with losing and while still enjoying winning. Exactly. So now that we've kind of gone over all of the tournaments and we have a really long podcast for this time, which I think is okay, 
I think this time people will actually be like, oh, it's not too short this time. My commute is just long enough for your podcast. Um, I think we should actually just talk about prepping for GP Washington and maybe perhaps how these results are going to affect GP Washington, what people should be packing in the board or at least expecting. So I think if we start off with Jacob, kind of talk about what you think would happen. So um, taking a look at the weekend results, uh, we had like three big tournaments. Um, maybe if we discount Los Angeles because it is on the West Coast. And um, I did dispatch six combo decks over the course of my nine rounds. So maybe that is a little bit of a uh, outlier. But aside from that, um, we see kind of a big rise in A for Val decks. And I definitely expect to see more true name nemesis in the coming weeks. Um, Possibly even next week, now that people had a chance to kind of go to Walmart or trade for a true name Nemesis, I definitely expect to see a lot more of that card. Um, potentially in Merfolk, potentially in Bant, um, maybe even just Blue-White. So um, I think it's going to be a, a similar shift to what we saw when Mental Mislip came around, which is more towards a slow kind of mid-range strategy uh, with a lot of uh, reactive elements like counterspells and spot removal. Um, on top of that, to counter that, uh, I definitely expect to see more storm combo, um, especially from the recent results of uh, Bizarre Moxon where we had three ad nauseum decks in the top eight. So between those two decks, uh, those two strategies, I expect to see um, very heavily represented for next weekend. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, the other thing we haven't necessarily gotten is a complete breakdown, you know, by archetype. And I realize the top eight had three ad nauseum tendrils decks, but it, it, that that may not be representative of the field. It may be representative of three people who really know how to play ad nauseum and had good matchups. So I don't think there's right, any... And, and, and I, I do want to add to that also that um, just because it was represented doesn't mean someone can pick up the deck now and... and yeah, I think that's just too late to actually get it. The same goes for elves. If you really want to play elves, I think you have to practice for at least more than that that's left to Grand Prix DC. Yeah, right. Right. I'm saying people who will be able to pilot those effectively will stand to do very well. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. But, you know, to your point, somebody may still look at something like VOM Paris and say, well, I'm going to hedge my board further against Storm because they see uh, three Storm decks in the top eight. But um, yeah, nobody's likely to make a, a deck... Uh, two things, right? In Eternal Formats, we have this overbearing arching thing, which is you just can't switch decks easily, especially if you don't have all the cards. So that's always a factor. So people are more likely to, to tweak sideboards, you know, if they see a bunch of... If, stupid example being if three or four dredge decks or two reanimator and a dredge deck had made top eight, people might hedge a little bit more towards the graveyard. But a lot of people are locked into their legacy deck, um, and, you know, so you're not going to see necessarily a lot of deck shifting, but you might you might see people packing sideboard hate uh, or different. Yeah, I think sideboards is where you will see the most changes because it's just too late to actually pick up a deck, buy it, or even lend it from some friends and prepare for it. So, yeah. What kind of sideboard <laughs> changes do you uh, anticipate, Julian? Uh I can't, don't really anticipate, but recommend sideboard choices, and that's Grafdigger's Cage. Because I really feel Grafdigger's Cage is one of the best cards you could have in the sideboard right now. It's powerful, and 
I don't. I'm not even talking about like dredge because dredge is such a little force these days. It might come back at some point, but because you can also use it against a wide variety of decks, you can actually. For me as an elves player, Grafdigger's Cage is actually worse than you say Engineer Plague. Engineer Plague against decks playing Engineer Plague, you will usually go for Natural Order to Progenitus, and yeah, that's fine. But Grafdigger's Cage actually limits limits all all the stuff you've got so hard, and. It's also got so so many uses against like Reanimator, which I expect to be a bigger deck these days because people have been cutting back very very hard on Graveyard Hate, uh, like really hard, and I think that's not just something happening over here in Europe, but happening everywhere. Well, they think uh, Deathrite Shaman is sufficient. Usually, is the answer to that. Yeah, which it isn't. So, if you are not sure about what kind of Graveyard Hate to pack, you should definitely go for for Grafdigger's Cage. Also, if you've got a quick clock, so if you manage to actually deal damage to your opponent very, very quickly, or at least in a mid-range kind of way quickly, Grafdigger's Cage suddenly becomes an option against Atmosphere and Tendrils. I mean, not so much about uh, against the Epic Storm, which is just faster and will usually not care about the graveyard, shitting out goblin tokens and stuff, but against Atmosphere and Tendrils, if you manage to get them down to, like, let's say 10 life or even less, Atmosphere suddenly doesn't look so good anymore. So they will either have to destroy the cage or get rid of your... Yeah, don't even know. I think they just have to destroy the cage, otherwise Passing Flames doesn't even work. Um, yeah, they just have to get very lucky with their rituals and yeah, Infernal yeah. Tutors. So for such a little investment, you get a very wide applicability over the entire field. So if you're not sure what to pack in the sideboard, definitely go for Grafdigger's Cage. Good advice. Okay, um, I kind of have um, an approach as well. I think that with all these like small inbred decks... You know, like you've got your Bant decks, and you've got your... Uh, there's some Mud decks, and there's some Storm decks, and then there's a lot of the, like, Elves. There's a lot of the Death and Taxes. With all these, like, small decks, you have, like, all these... The inbredness of it. So, for example, like uh, Julian was saying, like, the Danish players, a lot of them were playing, you know, a lot of Death and Taxes, and they were playing Manrique Gasari in the board to even have a chance at the at the mirror match. So I think a lot of these decks are trying to game against each other, whereas you have other decks in the format that are just absurdly powerful that aren't being thought about. So for example, Reanimator. Well, okay, so your Death and Taxes deck does have three Caracas in the main deck. Okay, fine. However, if I drop turn one Sire of Insanity or turn one Elish Norn, turn one Iona or even turn two, it doesn't matter. That strategy is way more powerful than can I game my sideboard for my opponent's running a Thalia and I've got some Phyrexian Revokers. Like, that's just not going to do. So I think if people are considering like what deck they should play, or at least what decks people who are trying to game the system are going to play, I think the choice of playing an absurdly powerful deck say, like, Tin Fins or something like that, is probably a good choice. Or, as Sean has suggested before in the past, if you're another control or a mid-range deck or a control deck, running something like Deed or Sweepers or whatever, and as I've been saying, consistency and power is greater than finesse. However, I tend to lean towards the better you know your deck, the better chances you're going to do. And Sean's quietly whispering something about Deed and Deed still. Personally, if I was to run a deck, I actually couldn't make it to DC just due to the fact that there's midterms and stuff and I just can't make it. However, 
I think if you are some sort of like black green deck, running Golgari Charm indeed is pretty good. Uh, I think if you're thinking about playing some sort of Storm or combo deck, playing Tinfins or Reanimator or something like that, something absurdly powerful is a good way to go. I was actually brewing a, and I'll post this up when we post the article, but a Toxic Deluge control list. Because Ooh, Deed, that sounds sweet. Because of the fact that, like, so say I've, I've played Bug Land still, which is Deed still, for quite a while. I've played it for years, uh, since before Mental Misstep, since way before that. Ever since Jace the Mind Sculptor got printed, actually. And what I found with the deck was you have Pernicious Deed and you drop it on turn three, and nowadays, if they have Abrupt Decay, that's a problem. If they go for Casali Pride Mage, that's a problem. You don't have your Sweeper. So I thought, like, what kind of Sweeper... Do, you want a Sweeper to sweep all the creatures. I mean, you don't usually care about the actual permanents that get left behind. Like, you're not killing Planeswalkers anyway, and the only thing that you probably want to kill is Aether Vile. However, running a deck with four Toxic Deluge so far has been pretty darn good, because turn three you clear the board, turn four you drop Jace. Or, turn three you clear the board, turn four you drop Standstill something else. And so far it's been testing pretty well. So I think playing something that people aren't seeing coming, so for example, people are focusing a lot on the Commander decks and talking about True Name Nemesis, and True Name Nemesis this, True Name Nemesis that, and Toxic Deluge has really not seen a lot of action, just because it's been overshadowed by True Name Nemesis. But I think Toxic Deluge is a real card, especially against, say, stuff like Elves. No offense, Julian. Um, uh, no it's, problem. <laughs> it's not... <laughs> it's, it's a really now, strong card. Yeah, and Toxic Deluge is not fast, but playing in a deck with permission, where I say, okay, my opponent, my Elves opponent went first, and suddenly is natural ordering on my turn three... But it can be two. fast. I mean, you know, you can run it out there against decks with no counter magic, and just, oh, re- sure. you know what I mean? Oh, no, no, for sure. I'm saying I'm casting it. It's my turn two right now, yeah. and my opponent is on their turn three with an accelerant going into natural order. If I'm playing permission, I just counter the natural order, sweep the board next turn. Yeah. And so far, like, I've been playing the deck with, like, Snapcaster Mages and Toxic Deluges, and don't get me wrong, using life as a resource means that your Zoo deck matchup and your Patriot Delver matchup is going to be a little bit weaker. But against the all the other decks that don't have anything to do against Toxic Deluge, they're dying very, very, very hard. And it doesn't suffer the same consequences that you do as playing a deck with Deed. So, for example, you can get Stifled with Deed, you can get Phyrexian Revokered against Deed, you have a lot of those problems, whereas I'm running Swansong in this deck, so you can fight over Toxic Deluge with Swansong, and it's not a big deal. <laughs> That's sweet. So, I mean, I'll post the list up and you guys can do what you want with it, but I think this deck plays a lot like the old blue-black standard deck. Uh, the blue-black control deck, and I think it's it's got some games. So I think what do you guys does it run Grave Titan? It runs uh, Worm Coil Engine. Okay, <laughs> that's 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 pretty sweet actually. You want some bonus about Toxic Deluge? It actually kills Progenitors, and this has become relevant in one of my matches where my opponent at 11 life had one turn to actually top tech Toxic Deluge to to win the match, but he didn't. But it just kind of felt kind of felt. I would have even laughed had, had he top decked it. It's a possibility. That's the whole thing. It's an out. So if my opponent goes show and tell Emrakul, if I had to, <laughs> I could kill yeah, Emrakul. Could yeah, why not? So I think it's I think it's definitely worth looking into, considering that people are so hard on True Name Nemesis, considering Toxic Deluge as a possible sideboard inclusion. And that's my my take on what is going to happen at, G, at DC, playing some sort of. Small weaning deck that's been doing well in all the tournament circuit, playing an absurdly powerful deck, or playing a control deck that shits on both of those. Yeah, I would make sure. I would make sure in the sideboard. I think uh, Julian and Sean mentioned before. 
being prepared in your sideboard, which means you, you're playing a 15-round uh, tournament, so being prepared to play 15 different matches is a consideration in building your sideboard. You want to make sure you're well covered, you understand what you're bringing in, what you're taking out in each of the matchups. Um, that's essentially like a homework assignment you could do leading up into the tournament. You don't want to ha have to be guessing what you're boarding in um, at every match. You want to know that ahead of time. I think having a sideboarding guide has really helped me, especially in a lot of high-level matches. I mean, where you just where your opponent, you can watch your opponent sit there and kind of think about, oh, what should I board out in this matchup? Whereas, say I've kind of sat down a few nights before and said, okay, let's take the top 25 decks in the format and let's make a sideboard that covers most of these decks decently well. Maybe it doesn't cover the decks that I'm already I'm only 10% against. But however, I want my ins and my outs, so I don't have to think. Because again, like we've talked about before, you know, a 10-round tournament is a mental game as well as a an actual... It's a mental... There's mental fatigue that happens over the course of that many games. So just having having a little aid... Because you're allowed, remember. Nowadays, you're allowed to yeah. actually... Just make sure to not actually put it on the table and show it to your opponent, because that's what one of the guys, I think, during day one did, and I kind of liked it. <laughs> well, you should be slamming all 15 of your sidebar cards into your deck and just doing it that way. If you Yeah, really that's what I always do. Okay, well, what, however you actually decide to do it, but having a guide is still nice to see which ones do I bring out and which ones do I bring in. Anybody else have anything to say before we kind of wrap up? Uh, make sure you pay attention. Call a judge. Um, know what your cards do. Know when to call a judge, which is almost if you're Don't not be sure about anything. To call a judge. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, they're they're really not there to give you warnings. They're there to make sure the game is played as it's meant to be played. Um, and you can always appeal to the head judge if you don't think a ruling is correct. May not go your way, but at least you have an opportunity to get a second opinion. Eternal Weekend, actually, uh, I faced off against some really uh, cool Canadian guys, Matt. So uh, shout out to Canada and the guys who came down from uh, Toronto to play. Uh, to play Toronto. Yeah. With us, uh, they, they managed to uh, uh, make it a real good time for everybody because they're Canadian and most Canadian guys have a pretty good attitude. It's a free health care. Except Matt. Yes. <laughs> Aww. So next time you have any health issues, just come to the South Moxon and we will take care of it. Yeah, no, I have nothing, <laughs> nothing but good things to say about the uh, public care, healthcare system in France. Although trying to get a money order in euros in the U.S. is like pulling teeth. Oh. <laughs> you should have sent the conversion in American dollars, though. It's like, eight euro, eh, I'll just send you like $110, whatever. I should have just sent them like uh, two Judge Foil, you know, Imperial recruiters or something. Just have to figure <laughs> it out themselves. This should cover my expenses. Yeah. Send him a friend like Medic in, uh, in French. That should cover it. Nice. So, anyway. Sam is going to be at GPDC unless he's died, and that's the reason he's not on this podcast. So, um, we will have... I think it's just going to be you and... Uh, you, Sean, and him. Uh, unfortunately, I, I was making plans about going, but... Yeah, I'd rather just not do anything and stay at home. Mind you, you guys could do a two-person podcast live on site. I think we're going to do that. We'll, uh, we're we're going to round up some guest stars, and um, we're going to go ahead and try to do a pod on site. I think that that would be. A... I just think like Jacob and I are going to do one at Star City Games Vegas, the Invitational. If Sean, you're interested in coming, uh, uh yeah, I'll think about that. So Julian, once again, thank you very much for coming on the show. Jacob, you had something to. 
Yeah, I was gonna say the same exact thing. Thanks, um, thanks for taking the time coming out here and uh, oh, allowing you to uh, interview you and share your experience from Bizarre Moxon. We wish you continued success in your elves journey and uh, throughout your magic career playing us for standard decks. <laughs> Let's see how long that will last. Yeah, well, hopefully you'll be able to uh, at least turn around a uh, a nice record and make the. Well, hopefully then, if something, if nothing good happens, then you just sell that standard deck and then get into a real legacy deck, right? <laughs> I used to play all kinds of real quotation marks legacy decks. I know, decks, I know. I know. <laughs> yeah, so Matt, Jacob, Sean, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed my time with you, and yeah, I've been listening to to uh, the podcast myself on my commute to work, like all the time, and yeah, it just feels really, really good to to be on the show, guys. Yeah. <laughs> awesome, well, thanks man. Thanks for nice words. All right, guys. Go, go take care of that dog. I think, uh, I think it might be running around again, Sean. Let's, let's wrap this up. Um, thanks for tuning in this hour. And you can reach us at, um, on Twitter, at EternalMTG, on Facebook, at uh, facebook.com slash EverydayEternalPodcast. Thanks for tuning in, guys and gals. <laughs>